This message by Zach Varnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're going to continue our series through the book of Acts this morning. If you need a Bible, we'd love to get you a Bible. Just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us, How he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. May God be pleased to work in us and change us by his word today. I found a Washington Post article this week that was titled, Humans once opposed coffee and refrigeration. Here is why we often hate new stuff. 
And the author commented on how history is just full of moments where innovations, inventions come that spark resistance. They're met with opposition uh, before they become fixtures in everyday life. I've heard this a lot before. This was true of the telephone. When Alexander Graham Bell offered to sell the patent for his new telephone to Western Union, they said no, describing it as nothing but a toy. They loved their telegraphs. This is true of the light bulb, the internet, the automobile, airplanes, farm equipment, and yes, coffee. Can you believe that? Coffee and refrigeration met with opposition. Harvard professor uh, named Calestius Juma, he explores this phenomenon in a book he wrote. This is what he says. People don't fear innovation simply because the technology is new but because innovation often means losing something, losing a piece of their identity or their lifestyle. Innovation can separate people from their sense of purpose. So introduce something new, even something good, something beneficial, and and rather than this glad embrace and this glad welcome of all its benefits, history has shown that we as a people are afraid of it often because we might just lose something, lose control, lose identity. In our text, as God does something new, in the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, it too is opposed. It's met with criticism. Some, some are afraid that the Gentiles being included in God's salvation might mean a loss of something, a loss of Jewish identity. They were, they were hanging on to these external things, these rituals and practices that had marked the people of God for so long. But God's doing something new, isn't he? Oh, and it's good. He's enlarging his mission. And he's good. And his purposes are worthy, not of opposing or fearing or being skeptical of. They're worthy of trusting. I think the call of this text on our lives today is this. Take steps of faith as God enlarges the mission. He's doing a work, and he invites us to participate with faith. I saw where one pastor who preached on this text, he titled his message, Cornelius Again. (laughs) This is now our third Sunday looking at this story. I was asked to sub in for Bill because this message is basically the same message as last week. It's our third Sunday looking at this story. You'd think we'd get it by now, right? Well, apparently Luke didn't think so. The Lord's given us this text. It's in his word. Why? Because there's something something significant for us to get. That's what repetition does. It reminds me of parenting over and over and over. So you'd finally would get it. There's something for us to get. It appears we need each of these three accounts to really understand. What's the Lord teaching us? So have we understood its significance yet? God God is doing something momentous in this story. But it also begs the question because God speaks through his word. God orchestrated this, that we would have this text even this, this very morning. So what's he doing in us, in our church? 
What's our role in his mission? We're working towards this church plant in a couple years. Dave Taylor is coming just next week to talk to us about the missions, global missions, and our role in it as a church, the role we play. Just recently, we had uh, two church plants, Redeeming Grace Church in Nashville and Trinity Grace Church in Athens, churches that we planted just recently. They both celebrated anniversaries. Uh, Redeeming Grace Church, their 10-year anniversary, and Trinity Grace Church in Athens, their five-year anniversary. We actually have pictures of these, if you can see that. So that's Redeeming Grace, been going on for 10 years, and this is Walt's Church in Athens, uh, five-year anniversary there. Dude, look at those people. Look at what God has done. And he continues to do it. He's doing a significant work, and we get to be a part of it. So there's something significant for us to get from this text because there's something significant God's calling us to participate in. So yes, Cornelius again, take steps of faith as God enlarges the mission. There are three stages in this story, and we'll look at what we can learn along the way. So point number one, God's work is opposed. Verse one, Now, the apostles and the brothers, which is a picture really of the whole church, the whole church is gathered, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Apparently, news of what had happened in chapter 10 between Peter and Cornelius traveled faster than Peter himself. So when he gets to Jerusalem, word is spread and he is met with criticism. The the circumcision party, it's not a group outside of the church. This is a group inside the church. These are Jewish Jewish believers, Christians now, but they're probably a group that came from a pharisaical background, which just means they were historically very strict observers of the law of Moses. And they're probably still committed to that way of thinking. They they assumed that before you can become a convert of Christ, you must first convert to Judaism, particularly in the form of circumcision and observing ritual laws like these food laws, clean versus unclean, not associating with those who don't. They had heard about what happened and what Peter had done. Peter had eaten, fellowshiped with uncircumcised people, uncircumcised men. J. Gresham Machen says this, a a more serious violation of Jewish particularism could hardly have been imagined. I I think this is why this story gets repeated. We we need to grasp its significance. Jews and Gentiles don't eat together. That's the law of God. You don't mix clean and unclean. What are you thinking, Peter? He had actually become, in their worldview, unclean because he had been with the unclean. They think he's defiling God's standards and therefore weakening their witness, compromising their witness. So it wasn't a totally unreasonable question. But the question of the text, the question of this very moment, it's not if the Gentiles will receive Christ. That's not the question. The question is, will the church receive the Gentiles? God has done an incredible 
work. That's what we celebrated last week in chapter 10. God's grace and salvation has come to the Gentiles. And yet, instead of being met with joyful acknowledgement, look at what the Lord's done, Peter's met with criticism. This is important for us to consider and to think about. In one sense, we should be able to understand. Remember, Peter struggled with this. This new thing God was doing, Peter had a hard time with. It was hard for him to understand. So it's not surprising that there are others in the church who found this hard to accept. But notice, they don't ask Peter about what he taught them. He doesn't ask them about the word they had received, how the Gentiles responded. Did they really trust in Christ? Did the Spirit really fall on them? Their only criticism, you ate with these people? You associated with the unclean? Jesus faced the same criticism, didn't he? When he ate with sinners, God is at work. And the members of the church are critical. God's enlarging mission is opposed even from the inside. God had removed social barriers that stood between Jews and Gentiles, yet they were hanging on to them. Maybe afraid of what they might lose of their Jewish identity. So I think it's just good to think about what implications for us, what applications for us, what, what barriers do we need to watch out for that we might put in place? Artificial barriers that exclude others. We cannot add to the gospel. And we must be careful not to be critical. Had the Jews persisted in this criticism, it would have limited their witness. They would not have been able to reach the nations. So what limits us? What other things are we prone to overemphasize to a place of primary importance? Other things, things like important things, things like educational choices for our kids, maybe political positions that we hold and we just know are right. How involved one should be in uh, social issues. You know, these things are important, sure. We should care about them, but they are not the gospel. We cannot divide over them. We can't exclude others because of them. We, you know what we can do? We can trust the Lord to do a work in all of our lives, mine and yours and everyone else's. God will do a work. He matures us to think about these things wisely Give us wisdom. He leads us by his spirit and by his word. That's the gift of being the church together. We're going to grow, grow in our discernment and application of God's words. And our lives will begin to look different and conformed into Christ's image. But when it comes to faith in Christ, when it comes to welcome into the membership of the church, we cannot hinder by adding anything extra creating artificial barriers. There's no room for that in the church. There's no room for prejudice. There's no room for self-righteousness or partiality or bias. How can there be, right? We've all been leveled at the foot of the cross. We all realize we have the same need for the very same 
Savior. So let's don't be critical in a way that is self-righteous. Let's don't elevate our preferences. Let's be charitable. Let's be a charitable people, gracious and humble. Let's be God-centered. Lean into what he's doing. May the Lord help us. I think he is, and I think he'll continue to. Help us think of ourselves and others the way that he does. Help us respond to what he's doing, not with fear of losing something, but with joy, a glad embrace, just like Peter ends with, who am I to stand in God's way? God's expanding his mission. Let's take steps of faith to participate in it. Secondly, God's work is all a work of God, verses 4 to 17. Peter responds to their critique by simply explaining what happened. He doesn't seem offended, which is amazing, knowing Peter. Instead, he just carefully retells what happened. Verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. Peter, Peter tells the story from his perspective. If you noticed, the order is not exactly the same as in chapter 10. He, he begins, Peter begins with his vision instead of Cornelius's vision. He tells the story from his perspective because he's trying to demonstrate how he came to understand what God's doing. He, he's leading them through everything that happened that changed him from rejecting social contact with Gentiles to embracing it as God's good and predetermined will. And here's the whole point. It was all God-directed. God did it. He needed his own perspective adjusted. John Stott says this, it took four, don't you love this? It took four successive hammer blows of divine revelation before Peter's racial and religious prejudice was overcome. That's just how hard it was. But also notice the patience of God, his kindness. But, but Peter's prejudice was overcome, which actually enabled him to be patient with the criticism he was receiving. So now he's trying to convince them, oh no, this is God's work. It's all God's leading. When the sheep came down in verse 5, Peter says it came to him. It wasn't just this arbitrary vision. It was specific. It was personal. Verse 6, looking at it closely, he says, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. He inserts beast of prey here. It wasn't in chapter 10. It's here. Because he's really trying to make a clear picture of how unclean this was. Animals that they could not eat according to the law. Verse 7, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He recognizes Jesus' voice. He knows this is the voice of his Lord, but that wasn't what was shocking to him. What was shocking to Peter is what Jesus said his request, rise, Peter, kill and eat. His request ran against every Jewish grain in Peter's life. Peter responds to Jesus just like he did before Jesus' death and resurrection by just saying whatever he thinks. No, Peter says, verse 8. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. You know, these words in that moment, that they would have actually helped these critics. He's saying, I get it. I understand your protest. 
He's stressing how he too had always obeyed God's law closely. He was a strict observer. He gets their concern. He's now just convincing them the work of God. Verse 9, but the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. It's an important message worth repeating over and over and over. David Peterson's a commentator. He says this about this. The the divine words that interpret the vision have profound implications for mission, for the doctrine of the church, and for a Christian perspective on the law of Moses. Listen to this. Holiness in terms of ritual cleanness is now replaced by cleansing and sanctification through faith in Christ. That's what's happening. That's what matters. That's the point. Peter had to come to terms with who God was. You remember in chapter 10, verse 34? Oh, I know now. God shows no partiality. He's, he's getting it. And now these other believers need to get the same. It is God's right. It is God's prerogative to determine what is clean and to redefine boundaries in this new age of the gospel. Christ has fulfilled the law. The kingdom is expanding The mission is enlarging to all the nations. And so verse 12, God says, go and make no distinction. I love that text from communion this morning in John 6. Jesus is, he's making the point that this offer really does go to all. He's he's, he's trying to encourage true faith and belief in him. Just two verses later from what we read, read, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that good news? All are welcome. All are invited to come. The clean and the unclean provisions of the law were temporary. They were designed to keep Israel a holy and distinct people for a season until the fullness of time. When Christ entered into the world and God ushered in his new covenant promise for Jews and Gentiles, the forgiveness of sin and sanctification on the same basis, Jesus Christ alone. The law of Moses has been fulfilled and is replaced by Christ's saving work. So no more separation, no more division, no more distinction. The gospel message is offered for all. So yes, they can eat together because God is expanding the mission. You know, when farmers, I think, I'm not a farmer, but when farmers go to plant seed, they should be, they can be, they are selective where they put the seed. They should pick good soil, even be selective on the seeds they sow because they, they need to choose what's, what's most, most healthy, what's most efficient, what is best, what looks the best. I think what this story teaches us 
is that in our sowing of the gospel seed, we don't have to be like that. In our sowing of the message of the gospel, we can be like the sower in Matthew 13. If you know this parable Jesus tells where all the different kinds of ground and the sower's just sowing, it really is this picture. And I've seen Mike Pluniak do this before. He loves this parable where he just takes the seed and the guy's just throwing it all over the place. He's indiscriminate. He is sowing everywhere because Jesus will turn away no one who comes to him. So let's share the gospel. Let's invite people to church. God is enlarging the mission. Let's take steps of faith, trusting that he will. You know, Peter, Peter's just telling them what God did. God gave Peter the vision. God brought those men from Caesarea. God told him to preach to Cornelius in his household. God even gave him the message. God called him to stay with him. God poured out his spirit on these believers. God gave them the gift of faith. God did it all. It wasn't Peter's idea. And here's what's so wonderful. We can have the same attitude when it comes to our mission. We don't, we don't have to come up with something. We don't have to make it up or seek to be impressive or trust in our own efforts. We trust the Lord and be obedient to his word. We don't have to wait around for the Lord to speak and tell us what to do because God has spoken. He's given us his word, the scriptures. They instruct us. They guide us. We can discern God's will for our own participation in his enlarging of the mission. God's in control. Peter, Peter doesn't, doesn't even name Cornelius because this story is not so much about him as it is about the Lord doing a great work. God sent Peter to proclaim this message. Verse 14, a message by which you will be saved. I think it's good to pause and think on that, that there is only one message by which we will be saved. And the implication here is we need to be saved. The greatest problem we face is not social restrictions that designate clean versus unclean. The greatest problem we face is our own sin against a holy God. And the only message that saves us is what Christ came to proclaim, that he is the only way of restoration and reconciliation back to God. That's what Peter preached in chapter 10. Peter preached Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his work and his rule as judge of the living and the dead. That's what cut through the hearts of these Gentiles. And God's heart displayed in this story to rescue these Gentiles, to offer them this message of salvation, even to orchestrate all that had to happen in order for it to come about. It's the same thing he's doing this very morning. We should trust him for that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't know how you got here. You're just here. And maybe you're not sure what you think about the Lord or the message of Christianity the Christian message of salvation, well, all of this has been orchestrated by a loving God who is calling you to turn from your sin and to believe in the one he sent, Jesus Christ, who died in your place. 
bearing your sin that you might have life in him. Call out to him for forgiveness because he will never cast out anyone who comes to him. Peter's emphasis is not so much the content of the message he proclaimed, but the work that God did through it. Look at verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. I kind of think Peter's still a little bit bothered that he wasn't able to finish his sermon before the Lord interrupted him. He's referencing Pentecost. What happens to them at the beginning when Peter preached the message in Jerusalem that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 16, Peter says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what happened. One of the benefits of getting to preach two weeks in a row is you get to go out to eat with Curtis Scheidler and you can ask him, hey, did I miss anything in the text? To which he should have said, no. But to which he responds, I'm kidding, to which he responds, well, (laughs) I always like to think about how the gift and outpouring of tongues is the reversal of Babel, to which I said, that should preach. It's a strong point there, Curtis. All these new believers, as they're filled with the Spirit and they speak in tongues, remember that happened in in chapter 10. What's happening is the unity of praise to God in multiple languages. It's an amazing thing. The story of Babel in Genesis 11, it was God's judgment on the pride of man. Man seeking to be self-sufficient and make a name for themselves. They were not scattering over the earth and obeying the word of God. They were seeking to glorify themselves. And so God came down and confused their languages, remember? And they spread, they divided, there was division. Tongues and the outpouring of the Spirit in the new covenant is the reversal of Babel. The unity of God's people, multiple languages united now in praise back to God. The mission is being enlarged. Peter learned and continues to learn that God's grace is boundless. And so that's why he ends with verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Almost as if to say, it wasn't my idea. This is the Lord's doing. To stand in the way of the membership of others into the church when they genuinely do trust in the Lord Jesus for their salvation, it's to stand opposed to God. So we should have the same attitude as Peter. Who am I to stand in God's way? I just, I just want him and his kingdom and his purposes to advance, not mine. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done, not mine, oh God. We need humility for that. We need a great love for the glory of God. We need a great love for his people. You know, this issue could have split the church. It had to be resolved if the church was gonna be united in its mission. 
the unity of the Spirit. That's what he's doing in us. That's what we want to fight for, the unity of the Spirit, because salvation is entirely from the Lord. Lastly, point three, God's work is worthy of praise. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. At the end of Peter's account, F.F. Bruce says, their criticism ceased, their worship began. They listened. Peter's account helped them, and they changed. Now, the issue is not going away just yet. There are going to be more discussions and decisions about this all the way to Acts chapter 15. But their response in light of verse 18 is right. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this is not simply repentance from certain sins. It's repentance or it's a rejection. It's a turning from everything that hinders receiving salvation through faith in Christ. And when God grants this repentance that leads to life, he's not just making it possible. He's getting it done. He's giving repentance itself. That's what they experienced. That's what these Gentiles experienced, this radical reorientation of their allegiance and their devotion. Has this happened in your life? Have you repented in this way? Repentance that leads to life. Jesus said he came as the only way. He is the way and his offer for you is to turn from your sin and to follow him. Are you one who might look around the room and think, maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not a believer. Either way, thinking the same sort of thing. I'm just too far gone. I'm too different. I don't fit in enough. I don't look enough like the people around me or know enough. I think here in verse 18, is good for anyone. To the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Because it's not just to Cornelius and his household. It's to the nations. It's to you. God's granted repentance that leads to life. So praise the Lord for how he enlarges the mission. On May 19th this year, uh, John Piper was speaking to the graduates of Bethlehem College and Seminary. It was a commencement speech. And on that exact same day, uh, Christian author and pastor Tim Keller died. And so in the midst of Piper's commencement, he knew Tim Keller. He referenced Tim Keller in the last email exchange that they had together. They had In that email, they'd been enjoying together and celebrating a text in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sent out the 72. And Jesus tells them to heal the sick and to tell everybody the kingdom of God has come. And when the 72 get back, they are so excited. Wouldn't you be? Because they're like, it worked. People are being healed. Even the demons are subject to us. In your name, O Lord, great things are happening. But Jesus said to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We're talking about taking steps of faith to serve the Lord as his mission enlarges. But as amazing as it is to serve the Lord and to take steps of faith for him and to do things for him and to serve him, as great as that is, nothing is as great as what he has done for us. You know, ministry isn't everything, a dying pastor once said, once told his son. Ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. This was part of the last interaction that Piper had with Keller. They were celebrating, my name's written in heaven. I can't look back on successful ministry and get any true peace from that. Peace comes from finding my name is written in heaven. It's the greatest of joys. And here's the point. You'll be very glad at the end of your life if you've spent your life not most concerned with all you've done for Christ, but most preoccupied with and marveling at who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Because only that attitude, only that way of thinking frees us to serve him no matter the calling, no matter the opposition, no matter the sacrifice, because our glad joy is that our names are written in heaven. And if that is true, we don't have to strive to secure anything for ourselves. There's no loss. There's only gain in Christ. This new thing God is doing in Acts 11, unlike all those innovations and inventions throughout history, this one comes with no risks. This one comes with no uncertainty because it's God's doing and he's faithful and sovereign. So rather than fear or criticize it, the, in, the invitation, even from the text, is to joyfully embrace it. The Lord's at work, and he's calling us to take steps of faith. We can't, I don't think we can study the book of Acts and not want to participate with God's enlarging of the mission. This week we sent out another video on the church plant. If you didn't see it, Bill uh, talked about the providence of God, and he had his 1840 copy of John Flavel's Mystery of Providence, which he likes to show everybody. I think he got it for his second birthday in 1840. But he talked about how faithful God has been, how faithful he's been, and how it's so good for us to take note all the ways the Lord's provided and been faithful, because God will only continue to be. Peter, the other apostles, even Cornelius, they didn't know about Knoxville, Tennessee. They didn't know about Nashville. They didn't know about Athens. And yet here we are because God's mission has enlarged and continues to. So let's take steps of faith. Let's trust him. And all the while remember and celebrate. What's most important is not what we do for him, but what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your calling to trust you in your own mission. And thank you, Lord, for the invitation to take steps of faith, to participate with you in what you are doing to reach more people with the gospel message that leads to life in Christ. 
Lord, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is your power for salvation. Pray that you'd help us to proclaim it, Lord. Pray that you'd give us faith in what you are doing. Lord, I pray you'd give us hearts that are grateful, filled with joy, filled with eager expectation and hope in who you are and all that you will accomplish. You are faithful, and our eager desire is to give you glory for the faithful God that you are. So make yourself known in greater and greater ways. And Lord, thank you that you have expanded your mission to include the Gentiles. Glory to your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Zach Varnell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.